0: If you're like me, things like music, running, and cooking all bring me happiness and meaning. However, there are times where even the things that you rely on for happiness are not enough to help you achieve your goals. The good news is BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp Online Counseling is a way for you to connect with a professional counselor in a safe, private, and conveniently online environment. Schedule your own secure video or phone session, plus chat and text with your therapist. Everything you share is confidential and licensed professional counselors are available with specializations in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is available worldwide. And if you're not happy with your counselor at any time, you can request a new one at no additional charge. With over 3,000 licensed therapists, you can start communicating in under 24 hours with non-crisis counselors. Schedules can be set up weekly over phone or video, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp. They are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I've been using BetterHelp for the past few months, and I feel a strong sense of clarity, purpose, and understanding in speaking with my counselor. It's important to speak with a professional when you're feeling in need of communication and understanding. Beyond the Pond listeners get 10% off their first month with BetterHelp by using the discount code BTP. So why not start today? Join the over a million people taking charge of their mental health. Go to betterhelp.com BTP. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash BTP.
1: Just another few words about Sin Lawn Sin Lawn is environmentally friendly There's no watering It's water conservation No use of pesticide products No mowing Super low maintenance And you save money Sin uses bio-based ingredients. It's a soy and sugarcane. It's made in the USA, down in Georgia. They're the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass and have a USDA bio-based certification.
0: This is the safest and cleanest turf available. It's great for kids and pets. You get no muddy shoes, socks, or even paws. Professional and certified distributors and installers are located nationwide who deliver a premium quality product that's highly du- durable and UV stabilized.
1: Free time is at a premium these days. You really should be able to enjoy your lot yard instead of working to maintain it. You can have it in your yard where grass will not grow. It can be green all year. and It's great for residential homes, playgrounds, roofs, agility, golf holes in your backyard, and many more projects. So, go to sinlon.com slash people.
0: So we wanted to talk through the history of Genesis here with you guys, uh, give you an overview of both this music from a background standpoint that had such a foundational impact on fish, but also where they went in their own, uh, uh, historical and creative, right? So we've broken Genesis history for all intents and purposes down into four phases. Um, we're going to kick it off here with phase one, which is called Gabriel. Gabriel. This is the Gabriel era of Genesis. This is their inception up to the lamb lies down on Broadway, a really fantastic era that I think um, as we've noted here, and as you're going to hear both in our conversation, as well as in the music that we're going to play, it's had a clear impact on Trey and Tom's uh, creativity as teenagers. And as Trey was starting fish and really wrapping his mind around a lot of the songs and the way that he wanted uh fish's stage show to be. So, a brief overview of the start of Genesis would begin in 1969, where this will sound familiar to many of you. Genesis began practicing daily for 11 hours. Uh, their first gig was at a birthday party for a teenager, and they began searching for a record deal the exact same day, which makes a lot of sense when you go back into late 1960s, 19 early 1970s uh, recording industry. You have talent, you play a couple shows that are probably sparsely attended, you immediately get a record deal and doesn't sound anything like playing music nowadays. Uh, in 1970, they began playing a series of local residencies, performing on the BBC before signing to Charisma Records. Their second album, Trespass, marked a clear breakthrough from their focus origins as they began writing songs with multiple time signature shifts, included the nine-minute The Knife, which was a clear breakthrough in larger progressive rock.
2: Yeah. And it's probably, um, worth noting that the first album, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, um, it was, you know, when they, you mentioned the early days and they were kind of they were basically high school students, I believe. Um, and they were playing around town and um, this, they got signed by this guy, um, Jonathan King, who was like the guy from DECA records. And as you kind of alluded to, this was back in the day when you could like, you know, play like three gigs and somebody would be like, Hey, here's a record contract and, you know, let's go make some hits. And what they wanted were these like young pop hit makers and what they got was, was an album that was not particularly good. Um, and that Genesis sort of disowned, they kind of broke up. They, they wanted to create a new sound and the new sound that he, they were trying to create. Jonathan King was not into that. And so they parted ways, um, very, very quickly. Um, an interesting thing about Genesis is they're, they're probably the only band or one of the only bands that has, two albums that their fan base really just doesn't consider to be like part of the canon of the band. Um, and this is one of them from Genesis to revelation. Most people kind of don't acknowledge it. There's been like copyright battles about it, um, with Jonathan King over the years. So like when they, there's never any material from it on greatest hits records or in box sets or anything like that. Um, so it's, there's kind of this early sort of beta version of Genesis, but really where they start is with this album Trespass, which has nearly the, the final lineup of the band that they'll have for a while. Um, Anthony Phillips is the guitarist at this point. Um, uh, Phil Collins is not playing drums yet. He hasn't um, entered the band yet, um, but you do have uh, kind of the core of um, Banks, Rutherford and Gabriel, and, um, and by the end of uh, recording this album, I believe they had found Phil Collins. And I, he, on the tour after this and moving forward, he, he became the, the drummer. So they're very, very close to having the, that sort of finalized early uh, early lineup.
1: I think Anthony Phillips, he left the band following the release of uh, Trespass, was it? That's
2: right. Yep.
1: Okay. Yeah, he had horrible stage fright. That's why he left.
2: Right. 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 Um, Right. But uh, and, and so then they they find Steve Hackett, who uh, was probably a, a better choice in terms of the, the prog direction that they wanted to take anyway.
1: Yeah, Trespass in and of itself was not a terribly good record. I think um, The Knife, which they said was actually written as a parody of a protest song, expanded up to 19 minutes and played in concert. That certainly paved the way forward. I think that's probably the best song on that album. That's like the one lasting song i believe there's also the song stagnation that was kind of an early breakthrough emerging from a piano track they added layers of 12-string guitars expand that's on the 13 minutes before whittling it down they were very big on self-editing but the knife that was kind of would point the way towards their future records but i think also among the fan base trespass is kind of thought of uh not thought of as very highly i mean it's the first real genesis album like you say but at the same time, if you haven't listened to it, you don't really need to.
0: I really enjoyed it. I found this. I read the uh, Rolling Stone review of the reissue. And um, this just reads like an early, like drawing the connection further. This reads like if Rolling Stone had discovered Fish in like 1988 <laughs> uh, and said it's, it's spotty, poorly defined, and at times innately boring. Should be avoided by all but the most rabid Genesis fans, which... Uh, I feel like there was a certain error where a bad review from Rolling Stone was actually like a good thing for a band that was on the rise like this, <laughs> that they could just define themselves outside of the norm.
1: Genesis is pissing in the ears of their listeners. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I, I would say, I,
2: you know, and I am a rabid fan. I, I As Dave, as you said, I think um, Stagnation and The Knife are key tracks early on because they do kind of point the way of um, how their sound is going to develop. The material's not as strong as what was about to come, um, uh, but they're, they're sort of the, the prototype was there. But then they begin this period, uh, they've got sort of the finalized lineup that's going to be around for a little while. Um, and f- over the course of three years, from November 1971 to November 1974, they release four albums that are all incredibly strong. Uh, and that begins with uh, in 1971 with Nursery Crime, um, which opens with... Probably, if you wanted to skip Trespass, uh, if you listen to that Rolling Stone article and you you just start listening to their career with nursery crime, Musical Box is a great place to start. It's like one of these big 70s prog rock, uh, you know, half an album side pieces um, that really helps you understand what this band was going to sound like during the Peter Gabriel era.
1: It's also the musical box is the name of the preeminent Genesis cover band in the country
2: in the world in the they, world uh, oh, in the man. world
1: yeah they do the whole presentation I, the whole uh, all the, I will great. say I,
2: I don't do cover bands. Uh, the musical box is amazing, and I, I'll see them when they come yeah. through town. Um, They're so good that actually, like, the band has given them a lot of their like props and costumes and um, slides. We'll talk about the the lamb lies down on Broadway live show. They basically gave them their blessing to do like the early Genesis show because they do such a great job with it. Whoa, that's incredible!
0: Uh, musical box was that was when Gabriel started leaving midway through the song and. Putting on his wife's red dress and the big fox uh, mask that he would wear—I don't even know—think a mask justifies what it was like. It's literally wearing a fox head on stage. It's unbelievable.
2: Yeah, it's probably worth um, discussing that just a little bit. Uh, one of the key elements of the band in the Gabriel years, um, and we'll talk in the Collins years about how they were still a very strong visual band, but in a, in a kind of a different way. Um, they uh, they would have these. Gabriel really, he wanted to create like a very striking presence on stage and, um, kind of bring life to the songs. And also, as Brian mentioned a second ago, there was these long passages where he would have nothing to do on stage. And so he would go and change into all these different costumes um, to represent different parts of the song. And they were really crazy things. Like he, for a while, he had a triangle shaved out of the front of his hair, um, or he would have this like sort of trapezoidal contraption that he would put on his head. And there was a lot of like you know, black lights suddenly coming on and he would be all in all white, glowing blue and stuff. So, um, there's a lot of uh, some good footage that has emerged of this stuff that you can find on YouTube and whatnot. Um, but they were a very like visually interesting band in the seventies in an era where, um, you know, there actually wasn't that much that you could do with lighting and things like that. Um, but they did whatever they can to, uh, to create a great, uh, visual stage show. And they kind of treat, Every, every show like Fish does uh, the third set of a New Year's
0: Eve night where it's like essentially just a performance at that point in time. And there's props and there's uh, the lighting, as you said, is, is really crazy. Everyone's in costume. It's it's
1: wild. Yeah, like, like Matt was saying, there's uh, lots of incredible YouTube footage. I think of concerts from the 1972, 1973 era. Uh, we'll get to this in a bit. I know Genesis put out a live album, and I believe 1973, just called Genesis Live, that has um, some of the really key hits from that era. But yeah, go on to YouTube and like type in Genesis Live Supper's Ready and just prepare to get blown away in terms of the props, the sulfur explosion at the peak of the song, and without just giving too much away. If you're like 15 years old and watching this and properly influenced, you're gonna be like, "Holy fucking shit!" <laughs> like, I can't, you know. Whatever. I don't know what 15 year olds listen to these days, but they're like, "Fuck! I can't listen to this. I can't listen to this anymore." This is Genesis. Like, oh my god.
0: Well, and just like the the
1: um, like, Imagine Dragons. You can't be. You can't go back. And listen to Imagine Dragons after you go watch like supper's ready when you're like 15 years old
0: well and how tight they are with all their changes yeah. like in addition to the presentation that we're talking about like actually watching them play these songs it's mind-blowing i mean you watch like reba from that uh 1995 dinner in a movie and then you go huh. and watch like supper's ready and it's just it's unbelievable how they're keeping
2: track of all this and shifting on a dime it's um un- it's incredible i mean that's really like getting back to the fish thing another similarity is that like All of the members of Genesis, when you get into this lineup, they're all exquisite at their instruments. Um, And that's one of the great tragedies to me is that, like, Phil Collins doesn't—he gets a lot of attention for a lot of things. He's not recognized as one of the all-time great rock drummers, and he probably is. I mean, he is really, 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 really good. And a lot of this material early on had crazy time signatures and really crazy fills, and live, he just nails them.
0: Um, A couple other songs I think we should talk about here just with regards to nursery crime. Uh, The Return of the Giant Hogweed. This sounds like a fish song in so many ways to me, title and subject. Uh, It's about just in general, a poisonous plant from Russia that had been brought back by an explorer to England. Um, Steve Hackett really incorporates guitar tapping into, the song, into into their sound here, and it's really wild just to listen to.
1: It definitely um, sounds like something that was left off a long boy at the last minute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh,
0: Harold the Barrel, this was like a, a really big moment for the band. Uh, John Lennon at one point um, in the early 70s spoke about how much he – Uh, he enjoyed Genesis. Um, They said that the uh, lyrics to the song were inspired by John Lennon's writing, which was really cool. And then uh, the fountain of uh, Salmacus, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Salmacus. Well, this was inspired by King Crimson's in the court of King Crimson, which to Matt's point earlier, just the uh, kind of the three legs, of the stool of influencing fish from a progressive rock
2: standpoint, you hear that bleeding into Genesis sounds here. Yep. So next up is um, what is—so Nursery Crime is really, really good. There's some strong material on that, um, but I think they're still kind of maturing, becoming a band. It really is, you know, it's only their their third album. Um, But then you get Foxtrot, which is probably the first of their truly classic— Albums. Um, this opens up with the song "Watcher of the Skies," which Fish fans should be familiar with because it was the one of the two songs that Fish played at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. Um, this was kind of the introduction song that they used at a lot of their uh, live shows at this point. Um, but most importantly, uh, Foxtrot has what is, in my opinion, probably the single greatest. Uh, Genesis track, and we've already made reference to it a little bit. Uh, it's a, a track called Supper's Ready, which takes up nearly the entire side of uh, side two of the record. The The metaphor that I would use here is um, it, this is, to me, always felt like their echoes right it's like the first Mm -hmm. long form piece that they do it's the culmination of all their early years of work it kind of is a revelation in terms of what they're capable of and yet it's before the big one right I mean they don't it's you know they haven't made their big prog concept masterpiece but here in like 23 minutes they they show you everything that they're capable of that's going to unfold over the next couple of years Uh, and it's absolutely an incredible song
3: for
1: supper's ready it's certainly it's got some goofy bits it has uh some ethereal bits and just once it gets going to the like apocalypse in 9-8 portion like we said previously you really hear the fish influence on a song like thread and it's it's epic and they all went all out on the stage show in terms of getting like blue neon lights repeating gabriel the hold up like a crucifix when he sings about the new jerusalem and an explosion at the peak it's just uh you know it's one of those 70s when you think of 70s prog rock epics. supper's ready is one of the first thing that comes to mind and the rest of the album ain't that shabby either i mean definitely i think foxtrot is the record where you hear the click that's mm-hmm. uh if certainly nursery crime was the lead up, Foxtrot is where it comes together. And then from there on out, it's gravy.
0: Well, yeah, you get like at this point in their career, they've played 400 gigs or so across the UK. Um, they haven't totally broken through commercially, uh, of note. I want to say trespass reached number one in Belgium, which, um, Belgium mm. is amazing. The, the, that makes complete sense to me. <laughs> um, they reached uh, Nursery's crime, nurseries crime reached number four in Italy, and uh, in Italy, whenever they would play live there, they were playing in just in front of like just raucous, enthusiastic crowds, but um, here with Foxtrot, they get their first real breakthrough uh, to that point. Critics claimed that they have finally made the perfect album for their sound, and uh, of note, we feature these bands on past episodes of Beyond the Pond, uh, Foxtrot was apparently a huge influence on XTC as well as Faith No
1: More. Really? Yeah. XTC, I get Faith No More? Okay.
0: I knew you'd (laughs) like that one.
1: There's... I guess there's aspects of Angel Dust that can kind of be traced back to Foxtrot.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I I think after this, we get into, um, if you want to break this phase up into mini phases, um, to me, nursery crime and Foxtrot are kind of, I pair them up. Um, Then you get to the last two albums of Peter Gabriel's um, tenure with the band that I would kind of pair up as well, Um, mostly just in terms of the level of polish on the records. Uh, The production quality on um, this next album, Selling England by the Pound, is way better uh, than some of the earlier albums. Um, But also, you know, kind of drawing from Supper's Ready in this amazing piece, they start to drop in these several pieces on each record that are just like showstoppers. Um, you know, not quite as long as supper's ready, but really, really amazing. Sing, selling them by the pound. Um, as I kind of talked about with Tom, the conversation that you heard earlier, um, It's I want to say it's my favorite Genesis album. I I think it's probably not just because there's a there's like a couple of filler songs on here. But the high points on this record, I don't know that they matched at any other point in their career. I mean, Dancing with a Moonlit Night, I Know What I Like, Firth of Fifth, uh, Battle of Epping Forest and The Cinema Show are five of, you know, the best songs that they ever wrote. And, um, Firth of Fifth and Cinema Show probably up there for me with Supper's Ready as like the, you know, holy triumvirate of, of amazing Genesis songs. Um, and you really start to get in these smaller songs, you understand Peter Gabriel's ability to create little worlds with amazing characters in like three minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, and, he does this in a long form on the, on the lamb, but then in his solo career, he, he does such a great job of creating these, these tiny little stories and, and characters and worlds. And I think we're getting a glimpse into like Gabriel's greatness uh, at this point. Um, where does, uh How, how does a uh, uh, selling them by the pound stand up for you guys?
1: It's my favorite Genesis album. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's uh and... it's my favorite. I will admit, I don't think I'm quite as familiar with The Lamb as you are, despite having listened to it a bunch of times, but I think for me, the peaks of Selling England, like you said, are so high. Like, yeah, Firth of Fifth, Dancing with the Moonlit Night, a portion of which is uh, directly referenced in the Unfreeze McGee on The Bottom Half, more on that at some point, Um That also, actually, that record has the first song that Phil Collins ever sang lead on for Genesis, the song uh, More Fool Me. Not a great song, but it is foreshadowing because that was the first Collins lead vocal. But in terms of, like you said, Matt, like creating little worlds and also having some very catchy songs like I Know What I Like, that's extremely catchy well-written pop song put in like a really pastoral like prog rock like I guess prog rock suit you could say but in terms of like Firth the Fifth could be my favorite Gabriel era song as much for the lyrics as how it progresses the guitar solo the bass and drums under the guitar solo it's just it's it's a magical piece of songwriting
2: can I correct one thing you said yeah more f- uh, common Misconception, more fool Me, not the first Phil Collins song with lead vocals. It's not? Uh, okay. No. On uh, Nursery Crime, he sings lead on For Absent Friends and Hold the Barrel.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, okay.
2: Harold Her- the Barrel. He does? Okay. He does, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. All right. Um, but it's, it's interesting that you brought that up, and I was going to mention this later, is there is this kind of thought among um if you look at a very high level history of the band that it was like oh it was peter gabriel's band and then they needed a singer and like oh magically phil collins is like hey i can sing no i mean he did (laughs) he did some singing with the band early on and i think um as you know we'll talk about gabriel's departure in a little bit but i think they actually kind of encouraged him to to take the role because they knew he could sing already
1: plus he was a child actor
2: exactly exactly he was an oliver right
0: (laughs) one thing you noted that um i think is really just one of the really unique aspects of, of Genesis is these worlds that Gabriel could create and these characters that he could create within songs. Um, as you listen through Genesis, there's your, it almost feels like there's like six different people who are singing one different song and it's all Gabriel, just like creating characters in his minds, um, and delivering them in, in song. It's unbelievable. It's something that, uh, you know i don't necessarily want to say is a, is something that holds fish back because i think that they come with completely different other aspects musically like outside of uh, just what genesis gave them but you know you think about a song like esther that is always delivered directly from trey's voice you imagine something like that being sung by gabriel who's able to provide just so much like texture from a character development standpoint that is just wild going through um you know, listening to them, but
2: so now we come to um, basically the pinnacle of uh, the Gabriel uh, years. This is probably the album that is their greatest achievement. Um, this is the one that Trey's called out. This is one that uh, Tom called out. Uh, this is one that is, I think, just generally viewed by the public as probably their you know their best work um, with Peter Gabriel. It's also the album that. Essentially, ends his time with um, with the band, uh, and that's the lamb lies down on Broadway. And it's a concept record. It's a double record, um, uh, and they. It, it's very very long. It's very sprawling. Um, it's very musically dense. There's a lot of long Mm. instrumental passages. There's a lot of textures and things. It takes a lot to really kind of absorb this record. Um, This is my favorite Genesis album. I think, um, as I mentioned to Tom, uh on the talk that you heard earlier while I do think you know the high points on selling England by the pound are higher uh than anything they achieve on this just for consistency like i i really struggle to find anything on this album that is l- that is not great and that i want to skip over uh whenever i listen to it um the in terms of Gabriel's involvement with the band and what happened here i mean he um the He had a lot going on in his life at this point. Um, He was getting a lot of attention um, as the lead front person of the band uh, and and, um, his songwriting and his, you know, costumes and things like that. And two key things happen here, um, which kind of drive a wedge between him and the band. Um, one is that he's his wife gives birth, um, but it's a very problematic birth. His wife was sick. I believe his child was sick. And so the band had gone up to Headley Grange, um, famous uh, recording location. Zeppelin recorded there, Jethro Tull recorded there. Um, they were like, let's go, let's make some music. We've got all this crazy momentum coming off of selling England by the pound. And, um, so they went up there and they started doing these basically just jamming, um, and creating these like long pieces. Um, you know, for example, there's a song on, on side three called the waiting room, which is really just a jam uh that they that they did and they recorded and then Gabriel was with his family and then he would kind of travel to Hedley Grange and like spend a day or two writing lyrics maybe cutting some vocal parts um but then at the same time William Friedkin who had directed uh The Exorcist had read a story that Peter Gabriel wrote that appears on the back of the liner notes for the Genesis live album and asked Gabriel to collaborate with him on a film. And so Gabriel kind of went from like, okay, my I have family time to like, hey, I want to make this movie, and it kind of pissed off the rest of the band, I think, and they sort of tried to drag him back into the recording process. So that's all to say that you had these kind of two factions working, the band creating these crazy instrumental pieces, and then Peter Gabriel sort of swooping in and... at. The, dropping pieces of this story that he had written in as lyrics to the songs and it results in this amazing um kind of masterpiece but then at the end of this experience gabriel basically says listen i can't i can't work with you guys anymore if this is how it's going to be and he decides that at the end of the tour following the lamb lives down on broadway he is going to be a solo artist um so i know you know you guys both had high praises for Selling England by the Pound. Um, what do you think about the Lamb? It, do you do you like it? Do you go back to it? Is it is it a little bit too much to to handle at times? It's this a was lie.
0: my yeah. This was my intro to Genesis, though. Um, I, I want to say was this teased on the um, when they killed off a bunch of records for yeah. Festival Eight? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: okay so that was the first time I heard this record and that was and then like five months later is when fish inducted Genesis into the rock and roll Hall of fame. So I admittedly got into fish without really ever being a Genesis fan as a kid. It just wasn't a part of like my listening as a child as a kid uh and it didn't come to me until I was listening to fish pretty heavily um so this will always be my intro to them. I'll always hear that connection to both what Fish was doing uh, in the early 80s and in the early 90s, as well as this kind of helped me break down a lot of barriers I had from a listening standpoint to progressive rock. It will always kind of be seen as like a bridge record for me. I I, I love it. This is, um, this is probably my favorite Genesis record as well. I really like Selling England by the Pound, but this one is uh, collectively as a whole, just has like hits on that emotional core is like the story of, getting myself into the band, but also musically, it's just fascinating.
1: I think it's a lot. I mean, to me, it's very good. At the same time, I'll admit that it's a bit of a blind spot. I've always found it difficult to get into. I mean, I know, obviously, the title tracks, some of the bigger songs that they've been playing throughout their career, like In the Cage, uh, The Carpet Crawl, Back in NYC. Those songs I'll find very enjoyable. But I, sometimes I kind of have to force myself to listen to it, knowing that one of these days it's going to click for me. But whereas like Selling England by the Pound and Foxtrot, I kind of know back-to-back, Nursery Crime not quite as much. But yeah, I still, it's a strange blind spot in my Genesis listening, which I know it should not be. So I have to... <laughs> I have to work on some self-improvement with regard to the Lamb sound on Broadway.
2: <laughs> I, I will say, I mean, if, if I look at it critically, um, the two faults that I would give this album are that a, it's a little top heavy, uh, in terms of, or maybe I should say front heavy in terms of the best material. Um, the first record is a lot stronger than the second record. Um, although, First record has a lot of shorter songs. Second record has a lot of longer instrumental passages. So you've got to have a lot more focus for the second record, I think. Um, the other thing, though, is that conceptually, I, I've i listened to this album dozens, if not hundreds of times in my life. I could not tell you what the story is. Yeah. Um And I, and I've read the, the, I mean, it's literally printed in the inside of the, the gatefold of the, of the LP. Gabriel wrote out the story. It's so convoluted. It's so hard (laughs) to follow. Um, and rock operas in general tend to be like that. I mean, like if you look at like Tommy, it's like. It doesn't really, the story doesn't really make sense But you can basically say like Hey, kid has PTSD, he goes deaf, dumb, and blind, he has a miracle cure Uh, People start following him As a false prophet and he rejects all of them Right, you can kind of like
0: Consolidate it down to
2: something, he plays pinball Right, whatever Um, Even the wall, the wall doesn't make any sense But you can kind of say, oh it's about A rock star's mental deterioration or anything I, I don't know what this album's about I mean it's like, it's like a Puerto Rican kid named rail emerges from the subway and there's a wall of death in times square. And then he goes on this journey that like, maybe he's dead. Maybe he's not dead. Like maybe he winds up dead. I think his brother winds up dead at the end. Parts of it are about sex and like learning how to please a woman. Um, there's, it's just very, very like, you it's, just
1: describe Operation Mindcrime by Queensrÿche.
2: <laughs> I mean it's you you have to you have to strap yourself in for the Peter Gabriel ride on this cuz there's some weird weird stuff. Um but I I think musically instrumentally it's probably uh you know, once again my my favorite uh favorite thing the band ever did. Uh, I've got to imagine the idea of like a young creatively driven man comes to New York City
0: like for Trey growing up in suburban New Jersey uh at the time and having like like going up to New York to see operas and go to Broadway and see plays and stuff, that had to resonate greatly with him. Sure, and then the sure. ability to just like have slightly nonsensical lyrics at times that don't necessarily have to be a have to have like a, a larger point, but that's almost part of it. Um, there's clear connections there, I feel like, towards where Fish and Trey were or fish and
2: uh Genesis were.
1: Wasn't there always the rumor that Trey wanted to play it for Halloween and get like Gabriel to come in and sing it.
2: You know, he it's more than a rumor, and I we should have mentioned this uh, at the top of the show and some of the direct connections. Um, I mean, he he detailed it in a Rolling Stone interview a few years ago how he has actually written to Peter Gabriel several times to ask him <laughs> to perform this with them on Halloween and has gotten a response. Peter gave him a very a, a polite no, um, although I think he said he would consider it. Um, um, and yeah, Brian, getting back to what you said uh, with Indio, if I'm not mistaken, I think this was one of the albums that le- made it so far under the countdown that it was one of the campgrounds. I think you're totally right about that. I, I think it was. Um, I think it was, which had me absolutely flipping out. Um, this is actually <laughs> even if they it couldn't get Peter Gabriel, this is my ultimate want to see it on Halloween sometime album.
1: Was one of the albums um, that they killed off in that sequence in 2009 with the awesome, awesome flash technology? Wasn't one of the records like the Violent Femmes self titled?
0: Believe so. Yeah, Violent Femmes were on there. Uh, I think Jane's Addiction was on there. Can you um, imagine
1: Fish playing the first Van Fren's record? I mean, it'd just be it'd be silly. I mean,
0: they they figured out a way to fuse uh, Blister in the Sun with Harry Hood. So That's yes. true, <laughs> <laughs> Harry no, Hood. But-
1: and then the second night of SPAC 2012, which was like all Blister in the Sun in and out. Yeah,
0: but yep. yeah, I'm trying to remember. I mean, the the campgrounds for Festival Eight, they were the Lamb Kid A exile. I think thriller was on there, but I remember when the final eight came out, every single one of those albums would have just
2: blown people away. And, and MGMT, that was like the, the yes. curveball, the first MGMT <laughs> album. Um, yes, that's totally true. But so just to, to kind of wrap up, um, on the lamb, um, it's worth mentioning that, uh, they went on a tour for this, um, that stage presentation as kind of musically, this was the culmination of everything they worked towards with Gabriel was their most ambitious, um, visual presentation. Um, you can actually see this, uh, on YouTube as well. It's been kind of reconstructed. They did this really cool thing where, predating talking heads. They had like three screens behind the band and they would project different things onto the screens to set the scenery. Um, uh, Gabriel had different costumes, you know, Changing like practically every song throughout the whole show. Uh, there was at one point he climbs out of this giant phallus-like tube, and um, the 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 Slipper Man uh, costume that he wears is like the most insane thing you've ever seen a performer wear uh, on stage. Um, some of these costumes were so elaborate that. In 1998, when they released a, uh, a a live recording from the Lamb tour, Peter Gabriel actually had to go back and re-record his vocals for most of the show because he just like couldn't get his mic close enough to his mouth to get a clean recording in any of these shows. Wow. Um, that, I mean, that was how much he was putting the visual presentation even ahead of the, the musical side of things.
1: He would fly over the audience. They put him on... Like he would actually like fly like Bon Jovi and like living on a prayer video like above. Like he'd be on like a pulley or even Yeah, um, there there's
2: one point at the end of the towards the end of the album when he kinda gets like lifted up with this like enormous um like cape and kind of like but sort of wolf like costume. Um uh it's yeah, I mean it's like, it's wild. It's really wild.
1: Like Fish playing Santos in New Year's Eve twenty eighteen.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, exactly. Well, on this, the, the, the tour was them just playing the album in full and then some older songs as the encore, which I, I think as they're getting to the point where Gabriel's about to leave the band kind of proved to be a just part of like, like a, a disagreement within the band of, you know, Gabriel's focus on playing this record in full, but like playing all new music for audiences on a night to night basis. Um, I have to note we're con- contractually obligated to state this at this point in the episode. Uh Brian Eno uh offered soundscapes throughout the
2: record which <laughs> has to be
0: thrown into every beyond the pond episode.
2: There yeah there's he um uh s- small urban legend that he's not like all over the record I think there's two songs, if I want to say, um, in the cage and, uh, grand parade of lifeless packaging where he like put effects on Gabriel's voice, um, which was mostly, (laughs) I think, I think repayment for the fact that Phil Collins had, um, played on taking tiger mountain, uh, which was being made at the same time. So, uh, you know, kind of probably came in and was, you know, old pouty face and turned a couple of knobs and. And said, okay, there you go. <laughs> you got your Eno record.
1: Listeners, And that we are middle-aged guys with beards. So we say to those listeners, How much could you save in one year by switching to Harry's? Enough to buy 26 cups of coffee in New York City? Enough for three deep-dish pizza dinners in Chicago? Enough to pay six months of your Netflix subscription? How? Harry's delivers high-quality razor blades as low as $2 each, a fraction of the price of a leading brand, and saving you hundreds of dollars over time. I used my Harry's razor this morning. I like the grip. I really like the scent of the shave gel it comes with. It's just high quality blades. I mean, I've got a beard, but I cannot countenance a neck beard. I've got to have clean lines. And frankly, that's what I get from Harry's. I get clean lines. Get a Harry's trial set delivered to your doorstep by going to harrys.com BTP beyond the pond.
0: Harry's is a return to the essential quality durable blades at a fair price just two bucks per blade cut out the middleman manufacturing blades in a german blade factory that's been honing precision blades for a century harry's is super convenient has all your grooming needs in one stop and you can feel a little bit better about your purchase because 1% of all proceeds are set aside for nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better mental health care for men and veterans. To help support those who need it most right now, Harry's has donated a million dollars worth of shaving supplies to hospitals across the U.S. So listeners of Beyond the Pond can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com BTP. You will get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade. Rich, lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated. And a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go.
1: So go to harrys.com slash btp to start shaving and saving today. And get rid of that neck beard, guys. People don't like it. You think they do, but they don't.
2: All right. So, um, now we have Peter Gabriel leaving the band. So you have the full previous lineup, including, um, Steve Hackett, but minus Peter Gabriel. So, um, Phil Collins becomes the lead singer of the song of the band. Uh, there is a, an extensive search for a lead singer. They ultimately land on Phil Collins, uh, being the right choice and they hire from within. Um, and record another one of my favorite uh, Genesis records, um, which I think kind of, I like because of the momentum that they had coming out of the lamb lies down on Broadway. And that's, um, uh, uh, why am I blanking on this? Trick of the tail? Holy moly. Yeah. And that album is a trick of the (laughs) tail. Um, there's some great, great, great stuff on here. You know, instrumentally, once again, because they had recorded, um, uh, the Lamb, you know, they kind of written the instrumental stuff separate from Gabriel. A lot of that sound is still here. Um, right. You know, a song like Squonk, which is one of my favorite Genesis songs, um, could sit nicely next to Fly on a Windshield from from The Lamb. Um so that's crude of more aggressive, harder proggy sound um, remains. Um, and then in this this phase, this second phase of the band, it's it's transitional because you've got an album where uh, Gabriel has left um, and they're making a new album. Uh, they're kind of, you know, creating a new sound. Um, But then Steve Hackett leaves during this period as well. Um, He's kind of contributing less and less. It's becoming more of the Collins Rutherford Banks machine. And by the end of this period, uh, Hackett's gone and uh, they have an album appropriately titled. And then there were three. Um, I think you can kind of lump these albums in together sonically, this late 70s sound. Um, It wasn't evolving as quickly uh, as they had been um, previously, uh, you know, during the Gabriel era, um, other than you know, kind of personnel changes. Uh, at this point,
1: I think there was um, in the Fish biography written by uh, the journalist Park Peterbaugh, Peterbaugh I forget how to pronounce his last name. There is an anecdote where Trey is at some like party in the late seventies, or people are drinking, smoking, do whatever we would you want to do at the party, and Trey is like. I guess he's in someone's bedroom with two other dudes just trying to figure out how to play squonk. <laughs> like, it's like, Trey wasn't partying. He was just <laughs> with his buddies trying to figure out how to play Genesis's squonk. Yes,
2: yes. Because
1: I think it's like, it's a D minor chord, but not really. Like, there's like some weird aspect to it. I, I forget, but... I think of them as um, very British and very pastoral uh, Phil Collins was still singing in kind of like his higher pitch almost falsetto sort of not wanting trying not purposely trying to sound like Peter Gabriel but definitely adopting more of like a whimsical tone which is much different than what he would adopt in the, the 80s records when he really started to step out and like explore all aspects of his voice but I think certainly Chick of the Tail and Wind and Wuthering are still very involved, very produced. They kind of remind me a lot of um a similar era. This is also like Jethro Tull's very British, very pastoral era. With the album's uh, Songs from the Wood and Heavy Horses, both of which I call like Renaissance Faircore because that's what they sound like. Um, I kind of hate, and then there were three, that's a record that i don't know if they wanted to go pop or prog pop i don't like the way it was produced like phil collins is singing about like little nemo and the abominable snowman i think and then i don't know out of all the records in this era i can definitely jive with a trick of the tail and then wind and Wuthering, which definitely gets epic at times but i don't like it then there were three (laughs)
2: I would say I, I think Wind and Wuthering and, and then there were three are probably two of my least favorite Genesis okay. albums, if, if not the two uh, least favorite. And, and then there were three is really just an album I just never listened to. And I think you're right about that. I think on Wind and Wuthering, they were sort of moving in all different directions and steve hackett was trying to pull them in one direction and tony banks is trying to go in a different direction and phil collins is discovering his inner lead singer um you have the song afterglow on wind and Wuthering*, which is uh, a great song probably the first great pop song that phil collins ever sings um yeah And then there were three, maybe the absence of Steve Hackett just creates too much space for that start to stuff to come out, but they're not that great at writing a lot of the pop stuff or the more condensed stuff at this point. So it's just kind of a mishmash of um, stuff that I I don't particularly love. Um, The one exception I will say on that album is uh, that follow you, follow me, uh, you know, one of the all time great pop Genesis songs. Um, So they, they may, they managed to, to, you know, pull one gem out of there uh, yeah that song is
1: one. that song is late 70s am gold it sounds like nothing on the rest of the album and that's yeah that's a pretty good song follow you follow me is will be played in the cvs and when you're waiting in line at the bank forevermore <laughs>
3: secure
0: I think the biggest takeaway from this era is the survival without Gabriel, you know, the ability to transition and you hear the band kind of fighting within themselves and kind of pulling themselves in multiple directions in terms of where they're supposed to go next. And I think that, you know, trick of the tail gives you that first indication that they can actually do it. And then it's okay. What will we sound like when we get around this curve? And when we get past this initial era as a band, um, It's a fascinating thing because you don't hear a lot of bands really survive a period like this.
1: I think, oddly, my favorite thing from this era is uh, they put out a live album in 1977 called Seconds Out, which you get all the key songs from this era, plus you get uh, Phil Collins singing like Supper's Ready and Cinema Shows, all the good songs from the Gabriel area, And he actually pulls them off. And I think... I think this was the first tour where they had, um, because Phil Collins was doing a lot more singing, they brought in to play drums Chester Thompson, who's I guess was on loan from like Frank Zappa's mid nineteen seventies bands. I know he played uh, drums on like One Size Fits All and like those records, but that's like Seconds Out is actually a really good live album. I mean, it doesn't exactly jam, but in terms of giving you this era, I think it's excellent.
2: Yeah, it's um, it is a really, really great live album for all the reasons that you mentioned. I think it's also indicative of what a great live band they are in general and, and they had become by this point. Um, in terms of the lineup stuff, uh, I, I brought this up with uh, my conversation with Tom, which we heard part of earlier. Um, there's this crazy Prague crossover moment where in 1976, the first tour without Peter Gabriel, um, Bill Bruford Plays drums right, right. Uh, And you can hear that on the cinema show on Seconds Out That's the only song on that album That's from the 76 tour instead of the 77 tour um, And it's it's insane I mean it's so good um, But then Bruford went on to, to do A lot of other things including King Crimson um, Chester Thompson comes Into the band um, Selected by uh, Phil Collins Specifically not just From his work with Frank Zappa but because He had played in a two drum Configuration in Zappa as band. And you can hear that on Roxy and elsewhere. Um, And so he liked the fact that Chester could play on his own. He could, you know, play Phil's parts, but then during the instrumental passages, Phil could go back. And really one of the um, high points of their live show starting at this point was anytime Phil got behind the drums and it was Phil and Chester playing these insane dual drumming parts while, you know, Tony Banks plays a, you know, wild synthesizer solo. I mean, that became really kind of their their core strength live and
1: he was thompson was there to the very end he was basically the live drummer from there on out
2: yeah he um he wouldn't have been on this tour that was supposed to be happening this year uh they finally got um phil's son uh to to take that spot um which i actually yeah i don't i've never heard (laughs) phil's son play so i can't say but i was a little bit disappointed um because chester thompson is is an amazing drummer and uh you know was a, a featured player on, on all these uh, these tours for sure.
1: You gotta you gotta ride for that nepotism, like when <laughs> when it's like Eddie Van Halen replaced Michael Anthony with his kid, like yeah. Wolfie playing bass. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so, but you said something interesting a minute ago. I mean, like th- that it's amazing that they survived through this period. And I think that's a really yeah. astute statement. I never really thought of because you know they're coming off of the Gabriel era, and if they had gone straight into uh, the next area that we're going to talk about phase three, which is where they be- start to become hugely popular. Like if they had gone from the lamb lies down on Broadway and in- straight into Duke, you could understand that trajectory still going up. Um, but I think other than the live show, which was becoming really popular and they were getting a lot of, um, uh, you know, positive press and stuff for, it is kind of a miracle that they, made it through this sort of three album slump that they had in the the late seventies.
1: And most bands don't survive their lead singer leaving, let alone one as charismatic as like Peter Gabriel. So the fact that Collins was really able to pull it off and take it to the next level.
0: I mean, to that point, most bands don't have Phil Collins stepping in as their lead singer uh, afterwards and really being able to take the shoulder. But yeah, it's, You just like start to go through the list of, you know, what if this member leaves this band? Like, where are they actually going uh, at that point in time? Um, I, I have to note, uh, I, I thought this was hilarious. I was reading um, recently about this era of Genesis, and um, Steve Hackett said that he left the band because he felt that they accomplished all that they could by playing Madison Square Garden which um, to tie it back to fish as uh, Madison square garden has basically become their home venue. Um, as many as all of us know, they played 13 shows there uh, two, three summers ago at this point in time. Um, capping out at Madison square garden is a, is a interesting career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well,
1: fish breaks up in 1994. All right. Guys. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
2: I mentioned phase three. So then we've got this early eighties phase where they are um, transitioning heavily into the pop material uh, that Phil Collins in particular has been writing. Um, uh, He's at the same time becoming a successful solo artist. Uh, He releases Mm. um, his first solo album in 1980, um, which is a smash hit you know, catapults him to the top of the charts as, um, you know, such hits as in the air tonight. Um, and at the same time, uh, base almost simultaneously, they're making the album Duke, which is like, the, I think the reason I broke these albums, Duke and Abacab, uh, which
1: came I mean, in face value was 81. No. Uh,
2: so yeah, I guess face value came out a year after Duke.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're right about that. It was in between.
2: Um, right. so I think the thing that you see on these albums as opposed to, Like the earlier where they were still very much a prog band that was starting to write pop hits or later where you could say they were primarily a pop band that would throw a couple prog albums uh, or prog songs onto each album. Um, In this period, they're kind of 50 50 and the lines are blurred. Like the proggy stuff is long, but it sounds poppy. The poppy stuff is a little bit more complex. Um, You can see it as a, either a growth period um, to get to where they're ultimately going to go, or maybe the time when they kind of perfected their sound
1: and their craft in terms of that that balance. I mean, how many times have you met a 60-something guy? He's got a ponytail. He's balding. Maybe he's got like a faded Fairport Convention shirt. He said like, yeah, I kind of lost interest in 80s Genesis, but Duke, that's okay. That's where I got off. <laughs> Duke is, um... I love Duke, but that's Definitely The Division, you got the proggy Genesis songs, and then the ones better suited for Phil Collins gets a little bit starker. Like, for example, uh, the lead-out track on Duke, Behind the Lines, mm. which, as you were um, talking about earlier, is the like drum duets between Phil Collins and Chester Thompson. That's like a big, big dual drum showcase, which I think you can see in um, the recently reissued on video, Three Sides Live, which was like the 1982 tour, There's a really good performance of this song. It's the first song on Duke, and it's this big, awesome, proggy song. But then he decided to re-record it for face value as kind of like a weird, sped-up R&B song with horns. And it's terrible. (laughs) So, But this album, there was going to be a suite, because I think the songs Behind the Lines and Duchess and Guide Vocal we're gonna be combined with turn it on again and Duke's travel and Duke's end. They were gonna make like a 30-minute song, "Rival Suppers Ready," and then they ultimately decided not to do it because they didn't want to be compared to "Suppers Ready," and they also wanted to release some songs as singles. So they took the less cool route and they like divided it up. like you were saying, Matt, it's kind of like, is it Prague? Is it pop? It's kind of in between the lines are blurred. And then I think on the next record, Abacab, the lines get a bit less blurry. I mean, the production on that one, it's a little sharper, a little more informed by new wave, which was kind of seeping into Genesis's uh, sound at the time.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think, um, in terms of these two albums together, um, the, the suite that you just mentioned on Duke, that is the the funny part about that is that those are the best songs on the album. Um, if you, if you put all of that material together, those are the songs that I tend to listen to. And there's some skippable stuff throughout the rest of the album. Um, you know, I don't know that I could hum cul de sac for you right now if you put it under <laughs> my head, but it's on there. Or Heath um, um, he
1: Haze or yeah, like The end of Our Time. Yeah. So, you know.
2: But, uh, and then Abacab, as you said, it's, it's, It's a little bit slicker. I think overall, it's a little bit more consistent. Um, the, the songs are, are, there's not as much as many skippable moments. Um, but similar to kind of the way that I felt about selling England versus the lamb, um, the high points on Duke are so much better than anything that's on Abacab. Um, even if you've got some stuff that you could skip, uh, periodically, I mean, you know, you mentioned, we mentioned the whole suite that was meant to be, um, among the pop stuff, misunderstanding is, you know, I mean, that's a stone cold classic FM hit, um, <laughs> really amazing song. And I mean, Duke's travels and Duke's end is like, gets back to, uh, you know, some of the best Prague stuff they they did in the seventies. I mean, that's, that's 10 amazing minutes, uh, right there.
1: There was a recent, uh, a recent issue of Mojo magazine where they did a small interview with Riley Walker. And they asked him to, I guess, name the five headiest uh, like Phil Collins-era Genesis songs. And he picked Duke's Travels and Duke's End. And he says, it's, it's incredible. The only problem is like Tony Banks uses his keyboard over and over that Van Halen also used in Jump. And you can't. <laughs> you can't like hear the song without thinking of jump. But that aside, the song is amazing.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's interesting because you you get the like very clear break in any sort of like storyline between Fish and Genesis here in this era. It feels like because Fish never had this period of massive hit singles fused with their older songs. I mean, clearly, the last three or four records that Fish has put out has been kind of geared towards. Hey, maybe someone will wanna play us on the radio. Here's a couple of songs that like are tailor made towards it, but it hasn't really landed at this point in time. And so having that sort of division between writing pop sensible songs, having a number one album, but also still putting out these ten minute prog suites are it's 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 fascinating that they were able to do this still at this era.
1: What's well, interesting about Abacab is that was the first record to feature this guy, uh named Hugh Paddam was uh credited as the engineer who's this like legendary 80s producer. He's responsible for uh the famous 80s gated drum sound. You mm-hmm. can definitely hear on uh the Phil Collins hit in the air tonight, the legendary go 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 gong, gong, So that's whenever you uh hear the 80s gated drums that supposedly like Neil Young was obsessed with. He wanted to get that drum sound. Uh but yeah, Hugh Patton would go on to produce Every successive Genesis album up until We Can't Dance, all the Phil Collins solo records, I think Sting's, Ten Summoners, Tales, a 311 record, a Tragically Hip record, and he's just known in the 80s as having that really huge drum sound. Yep.
2: to mention something at this point. This is probably the best best place to um, to bring it up, um, because the next album that comes out, which we don't necessarily have to dive into, but it's another strong recommendation, is um, Three Sides Live, a uh, really fantastic mm-hmm. live yes. album. Um, and also a video, uh, Dave, that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that that is uh, accompanies that, that you can track down on DVD or uh, YouTube or various places. Um, but I mentioned earlier in the show that there were kind of two sides of the visual presentation uh, that Genesis did. In the, in the Gabriel era, it was all about the costumes and props and scenery and things like that. Gabriel goes away and Phil Collins is a very like uh, dynamic performer. He'll run around, he'll sing, but he wasn't into the costumes. Uh, he wasn't into kind of acting things out per se. And so what happens at this point is they start to shift their focus in the starting in the late '70s um, to lighting, and at this point, you know, in concert lighting, there's not much that you can do. I mean, you you know, turn different colors on at different times and stuff. And um, most of the cool things that were being done back then, you know, by like Pink Floyd and different bands, were either involved video or lasers. Um, and Genesis mm. never incorporated a lot of that stuff into their show. But what they start doing is experimenting with lighting and for example, I think it was on the and then there were three tour. They had these mirrors above the band um, and there were lights down uh, around the band that would shine up onto these mirrors and they would literally tilt them back and forth so that they could aim the beams of light into different mm-hmm. places. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring this up is because there's a key thing that happens. Uh, I believe it was, it was either in 1979 or 1980, which while probably not directly influencing fish and Chris Kuroda, basically changed the entire concert industry. Um, and that is Genesis Um, wanting to expand what they can do with lights and wanting lights to be able to do more invests in a company called very light very light creates the first moving light Uh, and Mm. genesis is the first band to ever use moving lights In their stage show So what happens very quickly in the Early 80s is that not only does Genesis have the best light show in Town they have the best light show In town by leaps and bounds Because their technology is being Sold to other bands who Maybe Mm. put in like like if you Look at like a Grateful Dead show from the early 80s they might have like five or ten Of these moving lights in their light rig Genesis had light rigs That were made entirely of These new moving automated lights, that they could do things that nobody had ever imagined before that we would take for granted now if we see them, because that's just the way that lights work. But they really right. change the game for everybody. And one additional thing um, that is actually kind of cool, if you go back to some of these mid-80s tours, they even had their tr- entire lighting trusses moving around they could raise and lower them and do things very <laughs> similar to how Kuroda does the moving light rig that fish has now Um so 30 years earlier if 30 yeah th- more than wow. that I mean 35 years yeah. earlier they were doing these and they would you know blend it with thematic things in the show like famously during home by the for home by the sea they would lower all the lights like so they were like a f- couple feet over the band and then over the course of the jam they were would like raise them up. So they were like big and majestic and stuff like that. Um, But they really had a huge influence on uh, the live music presentation in the eighties. And once again, this is something that every single band does now.
1: So in other words, if you're saying, when it looks like the lighting rig is going to fall on the band and split open and melt, we can thank Genesis.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so then we've got uh, one more phase to talk about here, um, and this is uh, this is the pop era of the band. This is Genesis at their absolutely most popular going around the world, selling out football stadiums, um, doing, you know, they thought playing Madison square garden for a night was a, a <laughs> pinnacle in the seventies, but here they are playing, you know, multi night runs at Madison square garden, um, all with their amazing new lighting rig and, and capabilities. Um, that starts in 1983 with the album. Uh, it's, it's the self-titled album. Genesis. a lot of fans refer to it as shapes, uh, because of the, the album cover. Um, I mean, if you go down the track listing for this record, a lot of people have probably heard nearly every song on this record and don't even realize it if they are around the same age as all of us and listened to rock FM radio in like the nineties, um, Mama, That's All, Home by the Sea, Second Home by the Sea, Illegal Alien, Taking It All Too Hard, Just a Job to Do, Silver Rainbow, and It's Gonna Get Better. And even if you don't recognize the titles of some of those songs, you probably heard a lot of them uh, around on the radio. This is just a massive, massive, massive album and catapults them into the stratosphere of, of pop stars at this point.
1: Yeah, this was also, they're also very big on MTV. They had a lot of videos. There was a video for Mama. There was a video for um, definitely That's All. Even like the early records, Abba videos. I mean, like you said, they're a very visual band. And they certainly catapulted themselves using the early 80s MTV. I mean, even more so on the next two records. But um, I don't think I've ever heard Silver Rainbow or Just a Job to Do on the radio but other than that, all those other songs, I mean, certainly part one of Home by the Sea gets a lot of play in the radio. But I think in terms of uh Prague awesomeness, second Home by the Sea might be their best Prague rock song since like geez, I don't know, like one from the Vine from Wind and Weathering. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's really it's good. It's
2: strong. It's strong. Um Yeah. I I will say maybe it was a Philly thing, but just a job to do was like a really heavily played song on on FM radio. Yeah. I didn't even know what it was called. I, uh, I just thought it was called, uh, I got a name, I got a number or something like that. Um, but until I finally owned the album, but, uh,
1: yeah, Yeah, that song is great.
2: It is. It is. And there's a lot of, um, the thing that is interesting to me about this album, um, obviously I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the band and I'm talking about this, so I don't, fault them for the sound in the eighties or anything that they wrote. Um, but this is one of those albums that I go back to from the eighties, which I think has come full circle from being really great to sounding cheesy for maybe a, a couple of decades. So now it actually, when you listen to some of the music that's coming out now, it actually sounds pretty fresh. Um, you hear the bridge. To like so much that's come out over the last Yeah, exactly. Decade, and and say. the influence. I mean, two examples that I would give that are very similar are Bruce's Born in the USA album, which I think for years people were just like, oh, that's cheesy and dancing in the dark yes. and synthesizers and stuff, and now you listen to it and it sounds so fresh. Um, and the the Fleetwood Mac album, Tango in the Night, which is like mm. the, the album that launched a thousand indie bands this this century, right? Um, this is the same thing. Some of these songs particularly on the back half of the of the album um i, I you know like a song like it's going to get better i mean it's like it's amazing i was playing this around the house a week or two ago my wife thought it was a brand new album that i was listening to um it's it's got <laughs> it's got a really great sound on the album and i guess we have uh Hugh Padgham to to thank for that
0: yeah i don't think you get the chill rave era of early the early 2010s or dream pop without records like this it's right it, it preluded all of that
1: it's, it's gonna get better it's definitely like a 2010's chill wave type song yeah like if that song had been written by some unknown band it would get like best in music on Pitchfork right you know, like- <laughs> has definitely undergone a critical re-evaluation in some recent years i think i mean it's pretty fire most of the way through i tend to skip over silver rainbow which i think is kind of a self-conscious attempt at making a prog rock song but other than that it's great
2: and home by the sea if you consider the two tracks home by the sea and second home by the sea together uh as one piece. I mean, they were always played together live and stuff. Maybe the only Genesis album or Genesis song that is both a pop radio hit and a prog rock masterpiece. Um, because, uh, FM stations would play home by the sea on its own. Um, and that's another one. Like I didn't know for years that there was a whole second part of that, that where they had this instrumental stuff. Cause I just heard the first four or five minutes or whatever on the radio over and over again.
3: Home by the sea, home by the sea.
1: Probably best heard on like the 1992 live record taken from the Weekend Dance Tour. Live, the way we walk belongs, yeah. which was a serious early '90s family ski trip album. <laughs> yes, we so,
2: listened to that that one a lot, a lot
1: <laughs> in the car. Yep. All of which brings us to um, Invisible Touch, huge hit.
2: Huge album. I mean, is and once again, I referenced Live Aid earlier, which happened in 1985. Um, you know, uh, in 1985, also Phil Collins had released the album No Jacket Required, which was and probably still is his biggest selling solo album. Um, that was such a massive hit. So many huge hits on that on that album, and then it goes straight into Invisible Touch, which has. Several like bona fide classic MTV videos. Too. So like they yeah. just have grabbed every single thing that you can do about being a pop star in the eighties. Um, and also it was an era when a band like this could be a, a big famous band. I mean, they weren't too much older than, you know, your Duran Durans or your in excesses or anything like that. And they're playing very similar music and building on a fan base that they've got young people, you know, in their teens and twenties watching MTV all the way up to, you know, people in their thirties, forties, fifties, who are fans of the. Gabriel era stuff. So um, it was just kind of, this is definitely, I think, the, probably the pinnacle of, of Genesis's fame in the in 1986, 1987 era. <laughs>
1: like i don't know how quite to phrase this it's almost like they made the 80s work for them as a ways the other way around like you listen to other legacy artists like say neil young and bob dylan had difficulty navigating the 80s like keyboards and productions and like the drum sound but whereas genesis kind of it fit them like a glove like the albums don't sound dated
0: Right, I mean, the synthesizers were already such a huge part of what their sound was in the 70s that once this becomes the norm in the 80s, you you bring that in on a Harvest-era Neil Young tour or, you know, what Bob Dylan was doing in the 60s and 70s, and it sounds completely opposite of what he was doing. Right. For Genesis, this is like their sound.
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean... It's not like you go listen to, like... I don't know, like a record like Empire Burlesque and they're like, what the fuck, Bob? Like it's-
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, even the, like look at Neil, like trans is such a kind of an oddity because it's so weird. Whereas yeah. Genesis, like they could add, you know, s- more modern synthesizers and even like electronic drums and drum loops and machines and stuff like that. And it didn't sound like too much of a departure from what they w- had already been doing at that point. Well, I also have to
0: wonder if, like, some of this is just the knowledge of the technology. Like, there was such emergent technology in the '80s, and Neil just, you know, deciding to put a vocoder, you know, to to start singing through a uh, essentially like early auto tunes on Trans, and then what he was doing on Life and uh, Landing on Water. Like, he sounds like a novice trying to play around with this new technology, yeah. whereas. The guys from Genesis are, you know, prodigies with this sort of stuff. Like, they're you talked about the light show a couple minutes ago. Like, they're advancing themselves beyond what is possible for a rock band in this era. And when you then introduce all these new technologies to them, they're just, they're able to actually insert it where it sounds like something that's outside of the narrative.
3: Can't you see? Hear my
1: More so than The Shapes album. like Invisible Touch is incredibly schizophrenic. Like, Phil Collins had just won Grammy for Album of the Year with No Jacket Required, so he kind of had license to be like as smooth as fucking possible. <laughs> so you get songs like the title track and *Into Deep, which is just like waiting for my prescription at CVS Classic song.
2: <laughs> but
1: then you got like, Domino, 10 minutes about nuclear war and the fucking Brazilian, which sounds like a nine-inch, like, Trent Reznor, Atticus Finch song. Uh, not Atticus Finch, Atticus Ross. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I almost had this vision of them, like, horse trading in the studio with Tony Banks saying, like, all right, if you want to put Invisible Touch into Deep on this record... I get Domino, I get the Brazilian, and you're just going to have to live with it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and so you know we talked about the balance earlier, and it's like, this is the album where, and I think We Can't Dance also after it, it's primarily a pop album that has a little bit of prog meat on it. Um, Here, you've got Tonight, 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 Domino, and you could probably lump the Brazilian into that category. But once again, those are all Awesome songs, really, really strong songs, and I'll stand for some of the, the pop tracks, too. I mean, I, I I have no problem with Invisible Touch and Land of Confusion, but even if you take those off the mm-hmm. table as just maybe a step too far... I love in too deep. I love throwing it all away. Um,
1: and, yeah, and, the only song that I record that truly sucks is anything she does. Exa- yeah, just, it should have that
2: should have been a Phil solo uh, song. Um, but other than that, I mean, pretty much every song is amazing.
1: What's crazy, but anything she does is that Tony Banks wrote it. Yes, exactly. I like lived. I probably lived like thirty eight years of my life thinking that was like a Phil Collins like seaside from like you know the No Jacket Required sessions yeah. <laughs> at like the. And then I found out Tony Banks wrote it and it's about pornography.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's definitely shocking. But, um, another strong recommendation for, uh, a live, uh, they didn't release this as an album, but video at this point, um, from Wembley stadium on this tour in 1987. Um, amazing show. You get a really great idea of what you know, the light show and, and everything like that was uh, was like at this point, um, but also the level of fame, because just seeing them in front of, you know, enormous Wembley Stadium crowd at this point, uh, you can truly understand like how uh, how popular they were and how much in the sort of international zeitgeist they were at that point.
1: Yeah, that's very much on YouTube. That show is a uh, midnight on Friday night. Wife is going to sleep. I'm awake drinking scotch classic. Oh, yeah.
2: the best time to watch it (laughs) (laughs) um and then we've got we can't dance which is we'll talk about this in a second this is the last album that we're going to talk about because it's uh probably to most genesis fans the last genesis album this is one where i think they just took it too far and and Whereas with the 80s, they were in lockstep with um, their pop sensibility, what was going on in the world, um, still having a lot of their legacy fans. By this point, you know, grunge in 1991, grunge is is a thing that music is moving in a different direction and they just kind of doubled down on the eighties pop cheesiness and the videos that they make. The videos are still all over MTV. The songs are big hits, but this album maybe we'll have, we'll have a different conversation in 10 years, but this album has not aged well. Um, uh, I don't know you know, if you guys agree with me on that, but it's one that I really just don't go back to listening to that much.
1: Um, it's got three songs I like which are the Prague Gear songs. Driving to the Last Spike, I think is still pretty good. Dreaming While You Sleep, and then the last song, Fading Lights, which is just a big Tony Banks, Prague in Your Face, like synthesizer showcase. But, I mean, your mileage may vary as to some of the singles, but, I, I mean, it's only got 12 songs. I think it has like 17 in my mind, as it's just got so much... Bano lyrics.
2: And it's also that it suffers from the early 90s CD bloat. It's an hour, the album's an hour and 12 minutes long. I mean, that's like, that's almost as long as the lamb lies down on Broadway. <laughs> it's, it's just too much. It's too much. They tried, they didn't throw enough stuff away. Um, you know, I mean, I, the, I think of like, hold on my heart as being an example of just like the lousy pop stuff on here. That's not even mm-hmm. saying about like way of the world or since I lost mm-hmm. you. I mean, there's just out tracks that really just should not have wound up on an album.
1: Yeah. Hold on. My heart is like into deep part two deeper, and <laughs> deeper argue. into the heart.
0: <laughs> I think it's noteworthy. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh Smells Like Teen Spirit came out in September of nineteen
1: ninety one. It didn't really catch on the public consciousness until like early ninety two, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, Okay.
0: Because I'm looking at the Wikipedia page here for We Can't Dance. It was released on October twenty eighth, nineteen ninety one. I'm almost a hundred percent sure that Octune Baby came out the Tuesday afterwards. And that, I know that it came out in early November, 1991. That represents to me a band from the eighties that was on top of the world in the eighties that completely recognized that once the Berlin wall came down, if you're a band recording in Europe, you have to completely change what you're doing to stay relevant at this point in time, which you two did completely. Now Genesis is coming at the tail end of a very, long career where U2 is really only like 10 years into their recording career. So it's a different time for them. But it's really notable that like span band that's selling out stadiums that's got pop hits but also is experimenting as much as they were still in the 80s just lost touch with what was happening, where where the Zeitgeist was going. Um and a week later you have another band from the 80s release an album that's gonna just step them up that much bigger. Within the 90s.
1: Well, I mean, Phil Collins at this point was very entrenched solo career. And this record is like sandwiched by two Phil Collins solo records, like sure. But Seriously in 1991 and then the really fucking horrible Both Sides in 1993, which I bought anyway because that was a huge Genesis stand when I was <laughs> like, like 14 years old, but it's fucking terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um. No, I think. That's astute. I mean, Genesis was at the end of the rope and kind of trying the same stuff that worked in 1986, and it was just less than. Yeah. I think
2: one one other comparison that's kind of fair for Genesis um, is... You know, Genesis, they were kind of a generation older than U2 as well. Whereas, like, U2 kind of came up in the 80s, they still had a lot of um, hunger in them. Whereas, Genesis is kind of getting onto the back end of things. They're getting into their 40s, you know, mid 40s at this point. Um, The band that I would kind of parallel them with at this point is Pink Floyd, who kind of had a similar thing. Like they, they put out these records and Floyd did it in 87 with a momentary lapse of reason and then in 94 with a division bell that are, you know, they're fine. There's a little bit of cheesiness. You can find some moments in there that are better. I think pink Floyd held onto their prog roots a little bit better. And so there's sure. more of those moments to grab onto, but at the same time, they both graduated to being these legacy bands, which like the rolling stones had become at this point where it's like, even if they put out a new album and you don't of it you're still going to go see them live because they're going to play the old hits they're going to put on a huge stadium spectacular that's going to blow your mind um and yeah either they'll play some of the new tracks and you go and you get a beer or whatever and then you come back and see them play you know invisible touch or, or whatever you're there to see
1: side note what's a better record phil collins uh his 1989 album but seriously or the Mike the Mechanics record that has like The Living Years on it? Oh, man.
2: Pro- <laughs> probably the Collins album, but The Living Years mm. is is a is a classic. I love that song.
1: He had some big hits with Paul Carrick singing lead vocals. What it was? The Living Years, Silent Running, yeah. All I Need is a Miracle. Oh, Mike yeah. Rutherford was, was tasting that solo life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Tony... I think Tony Banks put out a solo record in 1989 called Bank Statement, (laughs) which (laughs) it's like Spinal Tap. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, Tony Banks never had the solo career that uh, both Phil Collins and Mike Rutherford had to a certain degree. Right, right.
2: But um, yeah, we referenced a couple of great live albums from that tour. Um, A really great live video called The Way We Walk. Uh, There's two... Albums they break up the pop stuff and versus the prog stuff into two different live albums, which is kind of cool. Um, those are definitely worth checking out as well. Now, I mentioned very early in the program today that uh, Genesis is one of the few bands that has two albums that their fan base just completely disregards and does not count as <laughs> canon. Um, the first one, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, and then the last one, which is called Calling All Stations, where um, by this point, Phil Collins had actually left the band, and they decided to make another album with another singer. Um, something must have hey, been it in worked the, once. I mean, this must have something must have been <laughs> in the water because this is around the time that Van Halen had Gary Sharon in the band. So oh, like, oh yeah, right. And and it's Van
1: Halen three. I
2: mean, things just went abysmally awful for Genesis. They. Planned an arena tour. The album didn't sell. They wound up canceling most of the tour. I don't think they ever brought it to the U.S. I think they just no, they didn't play the States. They, they, they like, they were sad.
1: am sorry. They had a huge tour and then they made it down to 20, I think like 27 dates in smaller venues. And it just said, fuck it.
2: Yeah. And they wound up I think just playing theaters or like the arena gigs that they held on to were mostly empty. Like it did not go well. And by all means, Genesis was done. The, the nice little coda, um, I got to see the band in 2007 they Phil Collins joined again uh, and they did a, a tour that year which was really awesome um, they didn't try to they weren't trying to jam a new album with half decent material in they just went out and they gave you a classic genesis show with all the stuff that you'd want to see some really nice stuff that they hadn't played uh in a very very long time um i think that was a nice bookend to the to the band's history um they in theory were getting back together this year uh to do another tour like that but phil collins can't play drums anymore uh at all and um they you know obviously that's on hold for covid reasons and who knows you know by the time live music can happen again, if, if they'll be able to, to do that uh, tour, which was disappointing because I think they were doing a um, quick European run this year to kind of test it out and then bring it to the States uh, next year. I gladly would have gone. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens there, but that kind of puts a bow on the, uh, on the career of Genesis.
1: Wasn't there also, I think there was a Genesis documentary from a few years ago. It was very good.
2: Yes. Um, uh, it's called something like In Their Own Words. Um, the yes. BBC made it. It's really, really good. Um, that's, that's worth checking out. Um, the other interesting thing is that, like, as opposed to so many other bands that, like, if you look at, like, Pink Floyd with the Waters and Gilmore split or even Sid Barrett or so many other bands like there was never really any animosity between Genesis and Peter Gabriel like they've gotten back together periodically they did a one-off gig in 1982 for charity um, you know when they wanted to do that lamb live recording in the mid 90s Gabriel gladly went into the studio and re-recorded vocals um, he's gotten together with them a lot to work on a lot of projects they, they haven't quite gelled to the point where they've agreed to do a reunion which is a shame because that would have been one of my all-time wish list shows to see. Um, but they're, they don't fight about it or anything like that. Like I think they actually have gotten together to like jam a couple times, and then Gabriel's mm-hmm. just like, "Yeah, I'm not feeling it. I'd rather do my solo stuff." Um, but you don't see them like hurling insults in the press or anything like that, which is very refreshing to see that they, they stayed friends.
1: Just in terms of strange parallels, uh, Invisible Touch came out in in '86. And then Peter Gabriel is probably his biggest solo record, So, came out in 86. That album also gives you very, very commercial big MTV smashes like Sledgehammer and Big Time. But then there's like the awesome progier stuff like Red Rain, like uh, the Kate Bush duet, Don't Give Up. I mean, that's a very good record. And then what? The next one, Us, came out in 92. I think around We Can't Dance. Mm-hmm. And that album had Peter Gabriel basically trying to do the same hits in the eighties style. It didn't really work for him. Yep. And I think, um, I think he put out one solo record after that and that's it. Oh no. He had like a covers record. I forget. Scratch my, scratch
2: my back and I'll scratch yours. Yeah. two, Two records. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, this was awesome,
0: Matt. Thank you so much for hanging with us tonight and going through this. I hope, um, all of our listeners out there have learned a lot um, I know uh, as the sole member here on the call uh, who did not grow up listening to Genesis, like arriving late at Genesis, diving deep into their career. It's a fascinating musical career that kind of to your point, Matt, like moving away from the drama that you see in a lot of rock and roll splits, like there's a true collaboration in what this band has done both in Together with Collins and Gabriel, but then as they split apart and as they moved apart creatively over the next 15 odd years, and this was a fascinating discussion for me to take part in and I'm really glad that we did it.
2: Yeah. Once again, I'm glad you guys gave me the soapbox to get up on here um, and that people will go out and do some listening if they were a little uh, hesitant before. And hopefully we gave you enough information to, to get over the hump and check this out, because it really is a, uh, a great band that I do think a lot of folks who are like minded and have similar tastes uh, could really, really get into
0: yeah we're gonna share the primer playlist that you uh made it made for us a couple of weeks back as we were planning this episode um i think for anyone out there who likes the snippets that they heard who likes the discussion they heard just throw that on uh i think it's like two and a half hours of genesis and it will just completely blow your mind there's fantastic stuff on there
1: yeah once you get tired of listening to all uh 600 plus songs with the beyond the pond podcast master playlist and spotify you can uh Certainly dive into the two and a half hour Genesis playlist Matt put together. This was great. I really enjoyed this conversation. I love having these kind of mini deep dives about a band that meant a heck of a lot to me growing up and still does. So yeah, Matt, thanks for joining us. This was great. Yeah, I really. No, had a good time. No
2: problem. I'll always happy to stop by.
1: Just a reminder, you can always find beyond the pond on social media or Twitter at, at underscore beyond the pond one word check out our medium page medium.com slash beyond the pond as I had kind of just put the plug in for just now we've got the Beyond the Pond podcast song master playlist on Spotify. Whenever we uh, have an episode we try to put the songs if they're in Spotify up in that playlist. It's quite unwieldy. You can press shuffle and have a good time. As always, Spotify is good for auditioning some songs you find something you like, go on to Bandcamp and buy the shit out of it.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, as you guys well know, publishing structure here every other Tuesday. Uh, Tuesdays have no feel, especially here in quarantine. Um, we've got some, some really great episodes that are coming out here over the next couple of weeks. So check back with us. Uh, we got a really special episode coming out right around Labor Day, uh, as well as a few um, uh, great jams that we're going to dive deep into and as we move ourselves into the fall. So thank you all for hanging with us here tonight. Look forward to seeing you guys here soon.
1: Also leave us a review in, on, on Apple. We love reading our iTunes review. I'll, uh, I'll take photos of them and send them to Brian back and forth and we'll have a good time. So come back. Usually in about two weeks we will hold hands. Maybe we'll talk about some epic prog rock careers. Maybe we won't. You never know what we're gonna talk about. We're always going to fight fish myopia. Myopia. And we will go Beyond the Pond. The beyond the Pond Podcast is part of Osiris Media. It is co-hosted by David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman, and it is edited by Brian Brinkman.